KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Joe Biden has made marijuana legalization a campaign issue. The Democrats should run with it, says John Nichols. Also, Creole Marcus will talk about Bob Dylan from Blowing in the Wind to Murder Most Foul. Greel has a new book out. It's called Folk Music, a Bob Dylan biography in seven songs. But first, the midterms are less than three weeks away, and of the races the Democrats have to win, too many are too close. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, in order to hold the Senate, Democrats need to reelect their incumbents in Arizona and Nevada. That's Mark Kelly in Arizona and Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada. Mark Kelly is ahead. Catherine Cortez Masto is not. And to prevent Trump-inspired election deniers from disrupting the 2024 presidential election, Democrats need to elect governors in both of those states, and both are close. In Arizona, the Republican candidate for governor, Carrie Lake, is especially dangerous. So we need to know what's it going to take for Democrats to prevail in Arizona and Nevada? Well, I would say a key swing constituency in both states is the Latino population, which I don't doubt will favor the Democrats. But the question is, by how much? Arizona and Nevada, in that order, rank fourth and fifth, respectively, among the 50 states in the percentage of their residents and of their electorates uh, that are Latino. And one thing we know uh, is that there has been a drift in recent elections of Latino voters, mainly working class males, and in that sense, paralleling an overall drift of working class males toward the Republican column. And now so, let me interrupt yeah, here at one point sure. to say, of course, Latinos are not a single unified group. There are Latinos from Puerto Rico, from Cuba, from Central America, from Venezuela. And uh, of course, the Latinos of Arizona, Nevada, and California are mostly from Mexico, but we also know, we've learned recently, that even among Mexican-Americans, some look down on Oaxacans. So yes, uh, this is yeah, we, a- We do know that now. <laughs> so when we, talk, when we say there's a drift among Latino working class men, very different among Cubans, Venezuelans, and sure. Mexican-Americans. Uh, uh, of course it is. Of course it is. And 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 one of the uh, uh, sub-mysteries of the election is how the Venezuelan electorate in Florida will react to Re Governor Republican Governor Ron DeSantis's sending Vela's Venezuelan immigrants, asylum seekers uh, from San Antonio, which uh, is not actually in Texas, in uh, Florida, to uh, Martha's Vineyard, which also is not actually in Florida. But anyway. Anyway, I think one of the lead divisions among Latino voters was made clear by a Washington Post poll of Latinos, which uh, the Post published on Sunday. And one of the things it showed was that while Latino Catholics 
uh, were said they were going to vote uh, for Democratic members of Congress by a 63% to 36% margin among Latino evangelicals, which is a rising share of the Latino population, but obviously still smaller than uh, the number of Catholic adherents. Among Latino evangelicals, that uh, those figures were precisely reversed. It was 36% for the Democrats, 63% for the Republicans. So um, as is the case with uh, white folk, uh, spoken of uh, broadly, membership in, uh, in, evan- in an evangelical church almost in itself signals a, a kind of right-wing politics. I first learned that... Uh all uh, Mexican-Americans were not Catholic from City of Quartz, Mike Davis's book from 1990, which has a chapter on evangelical uh, recruitment of, of Catholics, and that was, what, 30 years ago. So this is actually quite a long-standing difference. I'm not sure it was been a political difference for 30 years. Well, uh, it's, there's been a way in which evangelicals uh, have drifted more and more uh, into uh, really right-wing cultural politics positions, and that these are uh, really more determinative for them than the other culture war issues are for virtually any other sector of the population. And do we know anything specifically about the Latino uh, vote in Arizona or in Nevada? Well, one thing that's clear generally from polling of Latinos, uh, and evangelicals are an exception here, but usually they respond chiefly to bread and butter economic issues. And given the rate of inflation, uh, that poses a further problem for Democrats in this cycle. There are specific issues that Latinos care about on the economy where the Democrats could be tooting their own horn on job availability, on minimum wages, on child tax benefits, on affordable health care, and so on, where the Democratic position is certainly preferred among uh, clear majorities of Latino voters to the Republican position. But on the overall economy and inflation, that's a problem. But the other problem is the Democrats haven't talked much about uh, those other specifics. And I I would add one specific here, which is a more profound uh, democratic omission. What is really driving inflation in uh, Nevada in particular, or Nevada as they say it, is rent. Um, And in Las Vegas, in greater Las Vegas is three quarters of of Nevada's population. Rent has just been completely out of control uh, in the last year. Yet there's a Democratic governor. Democrats control both houses of the legislature and Las Vegas city government. And there's been no attempt at rent control. Uh, That could come back to bite the Democrats in three weeks. I want to go back to the issue of the difference between Catholics and evangelicals, because, of course, there are also differences within the Catholic, not only voters, but within the Catholic Church itself, within the Catholic hierarchy. There are sharp political differences, as we have learned here in California. There's a huge difference between the hierarchy in Los Angeles and in San Diego. Yeah, and one one thing that, uh, that that's clear is that California really plays out you know, the differences between the previous pope's politics, uh, Pope Benedict, and the current pope's politics, Pope Francis. 
Benedict appointed as archbishops of both San Francisco and Los Angeles two very right-wing archbishops in two very liberal terrains. The Archbishop of Los Angeles, Gomez, actually heads the U.S. Conference of of Catholic Bishops. Uh, He tried to get them, uh, at the point at which uh, Joe Biden was taking office, to condemn Biden for supporting abortion rights. Uh, The conference did not go along with him. Meanwhile, his his counterpart, uh, Cordelioni, in San Francisco, actually uh, both condemned and denied communion to one of this San Francisco's most prominent Catholic, uh, Nancy Pelosi, for the same abortion-related reasons. At the same time, Pope Francis was saying to the Conference of Bishops, uh, don't do this. He advised against uh, what uh, L.A. Archbishop Gomez was advocating, and, and the conference did not go along with the archbishop. Francis also appointed uh, an archbishop in San Diego, uh, McElroy, I, I believe is his name, I don't have it in front of me, who uh, is in uh, the spirit of Francis, a more liberal archbishop. And Francis recently announced his new round of appointments to the College of Cardinals, which is the governing body of the church. And he appointed McElroy overlooking the more senior and with larger archdiocese, the Benedict's two appointments in uh, in LA and San Francisco. So I mean, in an odd way, in an odd way, if they want to be aligned with the largest sector of the uh, uh, Catholic community, the the bishops of L.A. and San Francisco might consider just switching to, you know, an evangelical church because they're in the mainstream there (laughs) on cultural issues. They are not in the mainstream among their own Catholic parishioners, both Latino and non just want to add one thing about the polling, which shows Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, perhaps a little bit behind her opponent, Laxalt, and the polling showing the both uh, governor's races basically tied in Arizona and Nevada. These are polls of likely voters. And the question of who is a likely voter is very much on the minds of Democratic get-out-the-vote workers right now. The basic definition of a likely voter is somebody who voted in the last election. And in right. particular, with midterms, where, where the turnout is much smaller, the likely voter is somebody who voted four years ago in the midterm. So that's who these polls are measuring. But of course, in the last four years, millions of young people have turned 18 and the Democrats have been trying to register to them them to vote because they're a basic Democratic constituency. And the whole uh, purpose of kind of Stacey Abrams and her cohort of Democratic organizers is to change the definition of the likely voter, not just people who vote all the time, but people who never voted before or, or people who are what the professionals called low propensity voters. It's very hard to turn them out, but the Democrats have at least some sectors working very hard, including the AFL-CIO, the States Project, uh, and there's tens of millions of dollars behind the effort to change the definition of the likely voter. Uh, Indeed, and uh, Nevada in particular has had its own sort of version of Stacey Abramsism. (laughs) Uh, In two particulars, there is what was uh, called the Harry Reid machine, which was a very active voter registration, get out the vote organization. And there is also Culinary Local 226, which is the name 
of the uh, Las Vegas Hotel Workers Union, which is one of, and by almost any criterion, one of the few great local unions uh, in America, 50,000 plus members who uh, have been more serious about voter contacts, voter precinct walking, et cetera, than just about any organization uh, in American politics. Uh, in 2020, building on the safety devices and precautions that their members had to use more than just face masks when working in hotels at the height of COVID, uh, they were uh, did certainly more door-to-door work than just about any any organization. They have 500 members working full time now in Nevada, in Nevada, chiefly around Vegas, to turn out exactly the kind of voters you were just talking about. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in America, a regular feature of this broadcast. We need an update on the Amazon Workers Union in Albany. It's the third official NLRB election uh, after the victory in the first Staten Island one and then the defeat in the second Staten Island uh, Amazon warehouse. The Albany one uh, has about 800 workers who are eligible. What happened in the election at the Albany Amazon warehouse? Uh, not to mince words, the union got clobbered. There were 206 votes for going union. There were 406 votes for not going union. And what and, happened? Uh, what went wrong? Well, I would suggest that Amazon is actually at a time when it's difficult to organize blue collar work anywhere uh, in the country and has been for 50 years, if not longer, uh, that Amazon is even harder than that. I, I think it's a very tough nut to crack. And, you know, the union deserves incredible credit for winning that first Staten Island warehouse. But, you know, the average tenure of an Amazon worker, of an Amazon warehouse employee is less than a year. And when turnover is that high, just viewed as an abstraction, most labor historians and whoever else looks at unions would say this is not a likely uh, likely grounds for unionization. Now, Amazon does all the pressure on workers that most employers do, and Amazon has more resources to do it than ju- than just about any employer. So I think it's 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 very hard. It's very hard and. Uh, if workers are going to advance at Amazon, I, I think they, they probably need a different strategy, and <laughs> that may not work either. What's the different strategy? Well, one of the things that's been going on in the context of spontaneous worker uprisings and walkouts and strikes in a host of sectors in a, all parts of the country in uh, recent months has been going on in the Inland Empire, which is where uh, a huge concentration of warehouses are located. That's where uh, the 40% of all imports into the U.S. that come into L.A. Long Beach Harbor are trucked for shipping all over the country. Amazon has 35 huge warehouses in this terrain, and there have been two uh, Amazon warehouses, one right by the San Bernardino Airport, where workers at each place coming up with their own little union have been uh, walking out, have been protesting, have been collecting signatures to get an election. I am reminded of how the United Auto Workers, when it was just as small as today's Amazon labor union, actually brought General Motors to heel uh, in the winter 
uh, the early winter of 1937 by shutting down one factory that manufactured all of General Motors ball bearings, occupying it, and in addition, occupying other factories in GM's uh, cluster of factories in Flint, Michigan, shut the whole whole company down. And uh, eventually the company agreed to recognize the UAW. If, and it's a big if, if Amazon workers can really impact the Inland Empire, where a huge, huge percentage of import Amazon imports have to go through, then they might have some clout. But that's going to be very hard. But I actually really don't see any other path even at the at the conceptual level, for having workers actually gain some real power in the Amazon empire. And one of the facts about labor organizing in the United States is even if you win an LRB election, it, it's a hard struggle to get a contract. We know that at that Staten Island Amazon warehouse, JFK 8, where the Amazon Workers Union won its first election, the New York Times recently reported the company still has enormous power over JFK 8 workers after workers protested Amazon's response to a fire at the site last week the company suspended more than 60 of them the union filed an unfair labor practice charge over those suspensions but this is part of a long-term struggle of Amazon to defeat unions even after they've won elections oh absolutely and an employer if the employer wants, can delay, you know, the bargaining of a first contract for months, for years, or indefinitely. That was something that the labor law reform bill, the PRO Act, which passed the House but didn't have the votes in the Senate, would have addressed and remedied. But the Democrats have to hang on to Congress and hope uh, they could get rid of the filibuster in the Senate in November for that bill to spring back to life. And right now you wouldn't bet, you know, your life savings uh, on that happening, unfortunately. And elsewhere in the class struggle in America, what's this we hear about drivers for Uber, Lyft, and FedEx? Are they independent contractors or are they employees subject to the minimum wage laws? Well, the Labor Department uh, recently uh, said that there should be different criteria uh, than those that the Labor Department under Donald Trump had promulgated for what constitutes an employee. And uh, that has raised uh, some hopes that, uh, you know, that, that this, this can go through. The Labor Department's criteria sort of go along the line of if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a duck, which, you know, uh, certainly characterizes the work nature of people who drive for, uh, for FedEx uh, and the gig driver uh, industry. So, you know, there's hope there. There's also hope, there's sort of a parallel development going on at the National Labor Relations Board in terms of its decision as to whether workers who are mislabeled as independent contractors can say that that's an unfair labor practice and compel, thereby compel the company to go directly into bargaining. That's sort of working its way up the NLRB food chain. Uh, so, you know, th there is this movement, and one can only hope that this will continue uh, in uh, this very uh, pro-worker administration to, to which Joe Biden has appointed a lot of pro-worker officials that can make these kinds of decisions. Finally, it's time to talk about Trump. 
Michael Cohen, Trump's former fixer and bagman, was quoted in the Washington Post magazine on Sunday saying, quote, I don't believe that Donald is actually going to run in 2024 because I believe he knows that he cannot win and that even if he did choose to run, he knows he will face opposition for the Republican nomination. He also knows very well that statistically he can't win the general election. He's lost the independence now based on Roe v. Wade, climate, student debt relief, and so on. So what he'll do instead of running is that he will seek to remain relevant in the party by becoming a power broker and believing that whichever nominee he backs and endorses will owe him a duty of loyalty so that in the event that his day of reckoning comes, they will pardon him for the plethora of litigation and consequences that currently plague him, close quote. I wonder if you agree with Trump's former fixer and bagman, Michael Cohen. Well, I don't really have any particular insights as to what Trump will do in 2024. But as for the rest of that quote, he's already done it. His uh, imprimatur is a crucial factor uh, in Republican primaries. The kind of people he backs uh, are the kind of people who win Republican primaries. And so, he, he, I mean, there, there are two ways in which he relates to the Republican base right now. The Republican base, still he, he, he's still their go-to guy. In, in many ways. However, uh, I, I do agree that that doesn't necessarily mean he'd be their go-to guy for presidential nominee in 2024, when there are many clones of, uh, of, of Trump, many Trumps running around like Ron DeSantis and others. I, I, I think he, it is a fair statement to say he, if he enters the primaries, I'm not at all sure that he'll be unopposed. I think someone like DeSantis would probably get in and, you know, get get significant support from people who like Donald Trump, but don't think he can lead the Republicans back into the White House. And there's one other reason why Trump may stay in the race, and that is that he makes so much money from his base promising to be their candidate if they send him five, ten, twenty five dollars. Oh, absolutely. Uh, he, he views that money coming in as a contribution to Donald Trump, the man. And whether, you know, it, it goes to any political purpose is, is certainly not necessarily the case, nor has it ever been. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. This is great. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Last week, President Biden granted a full, complete, and unconditional pardon to every American who's been convicted under federal law for simple possession of marijuana. The same week, Republicans escalated their attacks on Democrats for supporting criminal justice reform. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation. He's somewhere between Denver and Chicago today. Hi, That's John. Good. Hey, John. How are you? 
Pretty good. So what do Americans think about pardons for marijuana convictions? They love the idea. And I'm not kidding about that. The polling data shows that um, 68% uh, to 70%, depending on which poll you look at, says that uh, says Americans think this is a great idea, that expunging the records of people who have uh, busts for um, simple possession of marijuana is something that they favor. And what about Republicans? Do Republicans favor uh, pardons for marijuana possession? They do indeed. In fact, um, Republicans favor it by a majority well into the mid to high 50s. So it's a it's popular. Possession is still a federal crime right now. This pardon doesn't change that. Am I got this right? Um, you are correct. Um, because at this point, uh, marijuana is still a what's referred to as a Schedule One drug, and as such, um, it is treated as a dangerous drug. It's, it's listed with heroin and, and drugs such as that. And so, one of the things that Biden did, which was a really good idea, was that in addition to the pardon, he said that the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Justice should open an investigation into whether they should take marijuana off the schedule where it's currently at and list it, you know, if they list it at all, all in a more reasonable way. So it's, it's essentially what Biden did with this uh, decision, uh, that, which was focused primarily on the pardons, was to begin a process of what looks like movement toward decriminalization. Apparently, none of the people convicted under the federal law are still in prison. So mm -hmm. just practically, what good is this for them? Oh, it has a lot of good because remember, you've still got your record. There are people who for many, many years uh, have carried, you've got to check a box someplace. Have you ever been convicted of a crime? Have you ever served time or something like that? This is an ongoing problem in a lot of employment issues, housing issues, uh, a host of other concerns. So it's real. This pardon has a genuine positive impact in the lives of a lot of folks, and, and not just at the federal level, uh, or not simply for you know the federal crime. It's also that the District of Columbia is under federal law, and so at, or under federal oversight, uh, because it should be a state, but it's not a state. As a result. You've got thousands of people there who have uh, convictions that will also be impacted by this. And so, you know, what Biden did here was a really interesting act. He, he kind of went to the uh, what we think of as the edges of his power. He didn't do everything that people would like him to do. But within a reasonable standpoint, he went to where he could on the pardon. He began what's understood as a decriminalization process. And he urged governors around the country to follow suit, to do what he has done. Yeah, now, this is big. Let me just underline that, because, of course, almost everybody who has a conviction for marijuana possession, it was under state law, not under a federal law. I mean, unless they were arrested in a national park or something like that, they're up on state charges. Some states, several states have already changed the law about marijuana possession, but uh, what is it, 31 have not. So this is a live political issue for, for millions uh, of Americans. It's a very live issue because uh, in the vast majority of states in this country, marijuana still remains illegal. Um, it doesn't mean that, uh, that there's clear enforcement patterns. Some states are tougher, some states are, are weaker on it, but 
The bottom line is that as long as marijuana remains illegal in this country, it is a, a tool that police departments can use often when they pull you over and they've got nothing else on you. You know, maybe you had a loose license plate or something like that. You were pulled over. They didn't find a gun. They didn't find anything stolen or anything like that, but they found a little bit of marijuana. They then charge you with that and you end up going into the criminal justice system. And in fact, John, I can give you the example of my own state of Wisconsin, that a lot of folks in Wisconsin who have received gubernatorial pardons from Governor Tony Evers have had busts for possession or for you know small crimes, you know, limited crimes related to marijuana. And these issues have stuck with them. I mean, these are people sometimes in their 50s, 60s, that uh, it's an ongoing impact. And also, uh, one of the things is that if a governor signals that he or she is going to do pardons, then the, the good news there is that that also is a signal to police departments that, you know, there's not much point in going forward with this. And so you, even in states where you may have a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature that doesn't want to legalize, it's a tool that begins at least to open up the process to some extent. And so there's a lot of good that comes of this. Uh, and I give Biden credit for attempting to loosen up the laws. You say Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers has issued, what is it, hundreds of pardons. Uh, Tony Evers, of course, is up for re-election in a crucial swing state in America. I is this issue a part of his campaign? Yes, it is. The governor has been very supportive of, of legalization and of a lot of steps in, in the right direction. So too has his lieutenant governor, Mandela Barnes, who's running for the U.S. Senate. So there's a clear divide in Wisconsin. It's a really fascinating thing. Wisconsin has a Democratic Party that has been for quite a long time open to decriminalization or legalization, really wanting to move in the right direction. It has a Republican leadership in the state legislature that is exceptionally resistant. It's even been resistant to medical marijuana, which you know dozens of states have done. And so that divide is, is a fundamental issue in the governor's race. And intriguingly enough, the Republican nominee for governor, a guy named Tim Michaels, a millionaire, lives most of his time or has lived most of his time in Connecticut, but moved back home to run for governor. He was interviewed about this recently and said that he's against legalization because of you know, what he believes is a slippery slope, i.e. the old argument that marijuana is a gateway drug to all the other drugs. That's the argument you heard you know, back in the 1950s or 1960s, right? Yeah. And, um, but that's about where the Republican Party in Wisconsin is. And if I can last, throw one last thing on that's interesting about Wisconsin is that Wisconsin, southern Wisconsin, our most populous part of the state, is right over the border from Illinois. Illinois has done full legalization. It's got, you know, they're selling marijuana all over the place. And Evers, who's a very straight shooter, our governor, makes the argument that we're just losing a ton of revenue. <laughs> um, you know, it's like money, money that the state should be getting. Well, I understand Wisconsin is not the only state where marijuana legalization is a political issue uh, this uh, season. I understand that in the Pennsylvania Senate race, uh, Dr. Oz is attacking our man John Fetterman for his many years of advocacy of legalization and expungement. Yeah, Dr. Oz, who, who uh, has some record on his own side of, of being sympathetic to a more liberal view on marijuana, has, has seized on this as part of the Republican attack 
on Democrats who support criminal justice reform. There's been some really over the top uh, suggestions by Dr. Oz and by his allies and supporters that Fetterman is some sort of dangerous, crazy character for supporting legalization of marijuana, which Fetterman strongly supports, and also for supporting expungement of records. Uh, but to his credit, Fetterman's probably better on dealing with this issue than almost any, any candidate of either party in the country. Uh, he just doesn't back down. He, he embraces it uh, heartily. And in fact, he even has T-shirts that uh, advertise that he is the candidate who supports legal weed. And Fetterman is sort of showing Democrats how they might be able to deal with this issue. And want to talk about Nevada just for a minute here. The Nevada Senate race is one we've become worried about. The incumbent first-term Democrat Catherine Cortez Masto is suddenly in a tight race with Republican Adam Laxalt. He's pulled a point or two ahead in most of the recent polls. At a Laxalt rally last week where Trump himself was the headliner, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville argued that Democrats are not just soft on crime, quote, they're pro-crime. They want crime. They want crime because they want to take over what you got. They want to control what you have. They want reparation because they think the people that do the crime are owed that, close quote, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville campaigning in Nevada for Republican Adam Laxalt. I wonder if you have any comment on Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville. Well, the senator has not distinguished himself in in the uh, upper chamber of the Congress. It's an extremely disturbing connection to make. It's, we shouldn't make light of it. As fa- as troublesome as as the senator has been, the fact that he is trying to suggest that uh, just trying to suggest all the things he's trying to suggest uh, is is part and parcel of what the Republican campaigns have been like in Senate races across the country. It is true that the senator from Alabama may say it in incredibly, you know, sort of gruesome ways. But the fact is that highly sophisticated, very, very capable campaign consultants for the Republican Party are running ads uh, against candidates in races, Democratic candidates in Senate races and House races across the country that that really are overtly racist and that uh, leave little doubt that they are trying to suggest that Democratic candidates, and particularly Democratic candidates or people of color, are somehow dangerous or troublesome or, or shouldn't be considered. We've seen it in Wisconsin, my home state, where uh, the campaign against uh, Mandela Barnes by Ron Johnson and his allies has been so stark in its uh, exploitation of the crime crime issues uh, that it, it, in many senses, uh, harkens back to what you saw in the late 1960s and early 1970s from uh, people like George Wallace and Richard Nixon uh, at their worst. And so uh, the Republican Party has crossed the line. And it is easy to point to uh, you know, a senator from Alabama, so something that, that's deeply offensive. But I think the deeper thing to understand is that this is a part of the Republican strategy this fall. And it is something that uh, needs to be called out. It needs to be called out by you and I in this setting. But it also needs to be called out by um, those folks who used to call themselves responsible Republicans. And the fact is, in many cases, the, these are folks who are 
you know, winking and nodding in the direction of these, these really over the top and really troublesome campaigns. It's, it's, a sim, it's a symptom of what's happened to the Republican Party. John Nichols, his new piece for The Nation is titled Biden Just Made Marijuana Reform a Major 2022 Issue. Democrats Should Run With It. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Griel Marcus has a new book out. I think it's his best. It's called Folk Music, a Bob Dylan biography in seven songs. Griel, of course, is the author of many books, from the classic Mystery Train to the recent book Under the Red, White, and Blue, the one about the great Gatsby that we talked about here. He's co-editor of A New Literary History of America, 200 essays, 1,100 pages. And he's also written the column Real Life Rock for the past 35 years, starting at the Village Voice and more recently at the LA Review of Books. The collection More Real Life Rock, The Wilderness Years, featuring 73 columns from 2014 to 2021, was just published. We reached him today at home in Oakland, Greel, welcome back. So good to be with you again. Well, this new book is not a conventional biography. As Joyce Carol Oates says on the back cover, it combines the most candid sort of memoirist prose with truly inspired comments on the songs. And I would add some amazing true stories along the way. The first song in this biography of Bob Dylan is Blowing in the Wind from 1962. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? We all learned to play it and sing it. But you say it was your least favorite track on the album The Free Wheelin' Bob Dylan. And you say that almost 50 years later, you still didn't like the song. Why not? Well, you know, against so many remarkable things uh, on his first album, it seemed tepid. The melody seemed simpering. The song seemed pious. It seemed to talk down in a way. It just put me off there. And it also seemed so obvious. You know, it was a song about the civil rights movement. And, you know, why, is, why are some people treated badly? Isn't this terrible? It just struck me that there wasn't much there. But then, after more than 50 years, you changed your mind about Blown in the Wind. Please explain. Well, you know, it, it was sort of the context changed my mind. I was asked to write an afterword for a children's book of the song for little children. And the idea was that an artist would depict the images from the song and the lyrics would run at the bottom of the page and there'd be a CD of the song bound into the book. But it was really for six-year-olds. That's what it was about. So I'm supposed to write an essay, a very short essay for six-year-olds, you know, kids who just learned how to read or are still learning. And I listened to the song, I listened to the song, and I tried to think, well, what is a six-year-old or a seven-year-old going to be hearing when they listen to this song? 
And I realized that for a very young person, it might be describing a world that was utterly strange to them, that didn't make sense, that, you know, was opening doors that they'd never even perceived were doors. And the song be began to grow as I listened to it. It became not obvious. It became a struggle. How do I get this point across? And I wrote a paragraph about how when this song was written, Black Americans, and I left it at that, um, you know, weren't allowed in many parts of the country to vote for president. They weren't allowed to go to movies. You never saw their faces on television. Um, they, they weren't uh, allowed to make a decent living. They couldn't live where they wanted to live. And I said, you know, things are different now. But this was your country. This was your parents or your grandparents' lives. This really happened. And, and then I imagined a kid saying, but the song doesn't talk about any of those things. There's nothing in the song about black people can't live where they want to live or vote for president or any of that stuff. And I said, well, you know, that's right. This is what I wrote. That's because Bob Dylan was able to write about one thing in words that could be about many, many other things, too. There are people in this song. There are birds. There are mountains. There's the ocean. There's wind. There are questions and their answers. Why is the world the way it is? Why is there war, cruelty, and hate? Will this ever change? And so today, when people feel that they are not free, when people feel they're being treated unfairly, whenever they know that people only see what they look like and not who they really are, they can listen to blowing in the wind, and they can say, yes, I am in that song. That song is about me too. And so now, you know, I hear the song completely differently. I love, I love hearing other people sing it. I love to hear what they do with it, how they get it, how they miss it. It's alive. In the rest of this chapter, you talk about many other performances of the song by lots of people. Of course, it started out as a hit for Peter, Paul, and Mary. They sang it at the March on Washington in 1963. Odetta sang it, and Sam Cooke, and the Staple Singers, and I didn't know, Marianne Faithful, Marlena Dietrich sang it in German. I didn't know that Elvis sang it. You found a tape of Elvis singing it at his house in Bel Air in 1966. And of course, Dylan himself sang it many times. One of the greatest things Bob Dylan ever did was write the book Chronicles, Volume 1, which was published back in 2004. And there he writes about how in the 1980s, quote, my fame was immense, could fill a football stadium, but I felt done for, an empty, burned out wreck, close quote. It was in that era that he sang Blowing in the Wind for the biggest uh, live audience probably he ever had. This was at Live Aid in 1985, fundraising for famine in Ethiopia. He sang at a JFK stadium in Philadelphia uh, with a live audience of 89,000 people. Maybe that was the football stadium he referred to in Chronicles. He sang with Keith Richards and Ron Wood of the Rolling Stones, all playing acoustic guitars. They were introduced by Jack Nicholson. What was that performance of Blown in the Wind like? Well, it was absolutely awful. 
they seemed unsure of themselves. They seemed as if they didn't really want to be there. They looked terrible. Dylan looked as bad as he's ever looked. And he's had some bad look periods, which has nothing to do with being old or gaining or losing weight or anything like that. It's just, you know, the soul or the lack of it coming through his face in a given moment. And this was a bad moment. At one point, Dylan breaks a string on his guitar. Ron Wood hands Dylan his guitar and goes ahead and plays air guitar. Ron Wood of the Rolling Stones playing air guitar to Blown in the Wind. And it was just a shambles. What was so fascinating to find out was that a tape of the rehearsal that Ron Woods and Keith Richard and Bob Dylan had done before the show, where they're trying to work out an arrangement of the song. How are we going to do this? What's it about? And there's just this fantastic camaraderie between them. And they're all in love with the song and they all take it as a challenge. How are we going to do that? You know, how are we going to do it with just acoustic guitars? And they just keep talking about it as if it's an absolute touchstone for all of them something they've all grown up with. Dylan, too. One of the most beautiful things he said about the song at one point is he said, you know, when I play it with Joan Baez, it doesn't even occur to me that I wrote that song. It's just like, like an old folk song that was there. And I happened to learn it and I played it. Lots of other people learned it. And this is saying, you know, I wanted to be part of the folk tradition, the anonymous folk tradition, where there are songs out there and anybody can sing them in any way they like. And I became part of that when I sang this song, as opposed to when I wrote this song. That's a marvelous thing to say. Another remarkable performance came in 1997 when Pope John Paul II invited Bob Dylan And afterwards, the Pope gave a sermon about the song. And what did Pope John Paul II say? Well, he actually didn't perform Blowing the Wind for the Pope. He performed a couple of other songs. But the Pope says, after Dylan's performance is finished, you know, one of your representatives has told me that the great question of your life is how many roads must a man walk down? And the Pope says, yes, that is a great question. There's only one road, the road of Jesus Christ, because he is the life, he is the truth. And, you know, it wasn't very long after that that Bob Dylan would be saying exactly the same thing. He would be saying, Jesus Christ is the light, he is the truth, he is the way. I just thought that was a fabulous irony. (laughs) Yeah, I did Um, too. Not so much for Bob Dylan's life. It's pretty much an open secret that this book is about songs. It's not about Bob Dylan's inner life. It's not about his private life. There may be descriptions of what kind of situation he was in when he wrote or performed a given song. But really the question is, what sort of person would one have to be to write this song or to write that song? because these songs brought something new into the world. And that was a responsibility of a single individual, not you, not me, not anybody else. And there's a way in which the cliche 
of he made that song his own doesn't apply to the dozens and hundreds of people who've recorded Bob Dylan's songs and Blown in the Wind in particular. They're all referencing an original, and yet there is still this sense that it isn't an original at all, that it was always there. There's one other performance that you talk about in your book, Folk Music, a Bob Dylan biography in seven songs. November 4th, 2008, the night Barack Obama was elected president. Bob Dylan was playing a live concert in Minneapolis at Northrop Auditorium on the campus of the University of Minnesota. You were there. Tell us about that performance of Blowing in the Wind. Well, it was an extraordinary night. It's election night. The newspapers are telling us that Barack Obama is going to win the election. Nobody believes it. Everybody is terrified that it won't be true. I think people are afraid that it will be true. What will happen? The the United States electing a a black president? Is the country going to split apart? I mean, it was a tremendously fraught night. And yet here is Bob Dylan performing at the University of Minnesota, uh, where he had briefly attended. The first time he had ever played that campus in his entire career and, you know, at, at the end of the show, he gives a little introduction. He talks about being born in 1941, being a little kid when the atom bomb was dropped and living in a world of darkness ever, ever since. And then he says, but I think things are going to change now, echoing Barack Obama's campaign slogan. Then he sings Blown in the Wind and then the show is over. Well, it ends about seven or eight minutes before 10 o'clock. And 10 o'clock is when the networks are going to call the election because all the polls will have closed. And so everybody files out into the entrance area of Northrop Auditorium. It's very, very big. And there's a huge TV set up uh, above the crowd. And at 10 o'clock sharp, the news comes on. Barack Obama has been elected president. Bob Dylan arranged his show so that there would be time for people to file out and see that and join this historic event. He didn't, you know, stop playing at 930. He didn't go five minutes too long. He had it timed perfectly so that his show would join this event and this event would join Blowing in the Wind. You end your new book with the song Murder Most Foul from 2020. That's the song that begins, It Was a Dark Day in Dallas, November 63. The CD has JFK on the cover. It was Dylan's first original music released in eight years. It was the longest song he ever released, almost 17 minutes. Uh, You quote Elvis Costello saying the song brought him to tears and saying, quote, What I don't understand is saying it's about JFK. It's a bit like saying Moby Dick is about a whale, close quote. Elvis Costello is talking, I think, especially about the second part of the song where Bob calls into Wolfman Jack requesting records to be played. What did he request? Well, you never know who the voice is. You don't know who's speaking. There's a way in which this entire song all 17 minutes of it, or 17 years, or 17 lifetimes, depending on how you hear it, 
is really in the voice of President Kennedy after he's been shot the first time, but before he's been shot the second time. In other words, he's not dead. He may be unconscious. He may be completely um, frozen in shock. And yet his brain is saying, what's happening? Why is this happening? And he's saying to his assassin or his assassin, boys, do you know who I am? I mean, do you realize what you've just done to me? So it may be JFK calling into Wolfman Jack, not Bob Dylan at all. And it could be Bob Dylan. You just don't know. Somebody is calling into Wolfman Jack saying, you know, got to hear this song. You've got to play this. And you've got to tell the story. You've got to tell the story of the whole country. You've got to somehow capture this moment and redeem it. And so I want to hear Mystery Train by Elvis Presley. I want to hear John Lee Hooker. Uh, I want to hear Stevie Nicks. One person said, I wonder how Stevie Nicks is going to feel being included in this song. Everybody else is dead <laughs> and almost everybody else is. And it goes on and on and on through folk songs and uh, Only the Good Die Young by Billy Joel. And it's just this wonderful kind of where's Waldo of, of our shared culture. And you don't want it to stop. You said, well, what about this? What about 40 miles of bad road? What, what about Waterloo Sunset? You know, what about this may be the last time by the Rolling Stones? How could you leave that out? And you realize as you listen to the song that you don't leave that out. This song goes on forever. What's the last song that the person calling into Wolfman Jack requests? Murder most foul. Play murder most foul. Wonderful. And of course, to make it work, as soon as the 17 minutes of murder most foul ends, you should have another 17 minutes. It should just go on and on and on. Griel Marcus, his new book is Folk Music, a Bob Dylan biography in seven songs. He's written almost 20 books. I think this one is the best. Griel, thanks for this book. And thanks for talking with us today. Well, thank you, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.